Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today on Historically Thinking is Brent Tarter. Um, I realize I've known Brent since 2003, um, off and on. Uh, whenever I come to Virginia, he is my guru uh, to Virginia history, and really the history of the Upper South, for those of you who think that the history of Virginia is uninteresting. Um, wait until we get to the end of the podcast, and you'll discover it's very interesting. Um, so I have the, the ability to drive just to 50 minutes down I-64 from Charlottesville to Richmond, and we're talking uh, together in Brent's office. Brent, you've been at the Library of Virginia, which is uh, it's like the Library of Congress for the Commonwealth of Virginia in some ways. Um, it's a wonderful place. You've been here since 1974. That's right, Al. I came to work out of graduate school on a project for the old Independence Bicentennial Commission collected and edited and published the records of the committees and conventions that converted Virginia from a royal colony into an independent commonwealth. I worked on that for many years, then transferred from there into the library staff, where for many years I was one of the senior editors. Uh, We did reference works, we did educational materials, we did exhibitions, we did a a wide variety of things, largely on the subject of Virginia history. Um, I worked in that capacity for many years and um, have had the opportunity, maybe a unique opportunity, to do research in the original records of every decade of Virginia's English language history. So, so this, this is the place to be for that, because yeah. we, you know, we have the archival records, we have copies of uh, almost everything of consequence for Virginia, we have many local histories, biographies, so that I've been able to indulge my curiosity on a wide range of interesting subjects on Virginia history since 1974. So you, um, to Yankees like myself, you, your accent sounds Virginian, but it is not. I try not to have an accent. I grew up in Texas talking like cowboys, and uh, when I moved out of Texas, I came to Virginia, I realized that there were different accents all over the place, and that if you have one that's distinctive, somebody's going to look down on you. It doesn't matter whether you have a Texas accent or a Deep South accent, or or somebody thinks you're a cracker from the North Woods of Maine. Or a mafia member. So, well, I wouldn't know about that. Yeah, I know. But I... uh, Me either. No, I, I just tried to make my speech a little bit more vanilla so that it wouldn't get in the way in case I ever had something interesting to say. Um, I think I first I first encountered your name in an article in the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. I was reading through all the back issues. Well, not all of them, but through like 25 years. With I have back. read all of them. Yeah, you, you are certainly the one person, maybe there's Nelson Langford, has <laughs> read all of them. Um, but and I, I was going through 25 years, 30 years worth to catch up on Southern history, um, and you had written an article, The New Virginia Bookshelf. You remember that? I yeah. was uh, published in 1996, and I, I very well remember when you came here to the library the first time, and we had a long cup of coffee talking about that. Yeah, we did, and because you, and since then, uh, I haven't added to it, but you have added at least four or five books. Uh, you suggested that people wrote, and finally, in frustration, I guess, you finally wrote them yourself. So you've been on a... On a pu- I was, I've accused you've been on a publishing sort of, uh, uh, sort of like a spree killer kind of thing, a multi-state, well, not multi-state, a one-state publishing spree. Um, what have you been up to lately? A lot of the stuff you've been written long ago, I think, but you've been in your drawer and finally you pulled out and submitted I have, it. I have published four books in the last five years <laughs> and a good many uh, reference materials for yeah. Encyclopedia of Virginia, the Old Dictionary of Virginia Biography and other things. Um, the books have been long gestation projects that sort of by accident came together and got completed within a fairly short mm-hmm. space of time. Um, they're all on Virginia history subjects, on a wide variety of Virginia history subjects. Um, and uh, the stories that I found in the archives, you open up a box of letters, or you look at a reel of microfilm, you read old newspapers, you read old sermons, you look at old artwork, you go around and look at old buildings, and there are stories everywhere 
that are fascinating human dramas. Mm -hmm. um, I've done that long enough now that I begin to see patterns. I begin to see things differently than other people. You mentioned the New Virginia Bookshelf. I published that in 1996. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, what in the historical profession we call a needs and opportunities essay. <laughs> needs, things that we don't know enough about. That was the easy part to write. All I had to do was just write about all the things I didn't know. Why don't we have a book on this? Why hasn't somebody written a biography of that person? Opportunities come from the materials that have not been properly exploited in mm -hmm. understanding aspects of Virginia history. Since I work here in the Library of Virginia, I'm right down the street from the Virginia Historical Society. I'm just a few hours from the Library of Congress and the National Archives and several major university libraries. I have seen a lot of wonderful material that nobody has used to good effect yet, either to explain part of the economic history of mm -hmm. Uh, of these people who live here or to enrich our understandings of religious or cultural history. There's just so much that we don't yet know and it's not for want of materials. Right. It's because we haven't exploited the materials that we have well enough. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm continually surprised. I've worked in this library since 1974, and I learn something new every day. Mm -hmm. And quite frequently, I come across materials that I didn't even know about. Mm -hmm. And every one of those items has a story that's trying to get out. Uh, yeah. I see a historian's job is to help those stories out of obscurity and see what we can learn from them, both about our past and what that past may um, inform us about our present. Not to put you on the spot, but you. Uh, but you're going to put. Yeah, I'll put you on the spot anyway, because um, I, I always like to hear you tell those stories that you discovered. Um, and I know you've been. You had a very. I remember you describing to me years ago how you had learned so much history from the people that would just come through, and tell you what they were reading and what oh, they yeah. were finding. So was it uh, was Nelson Patrick Eli? Was he when he would come and he would look up stuff that oh. became at the became his book uh, Israel on the Israel Appomattox. On the Appomattox, Mel worked. Uh, he taught it. No, uh, yeah. He taught Mel Ely taught it. Mel Ely, right? Sorry. At, um, Yale for many years, and he would come and spend the summers down here in the archives because yeah. he was aware of a small community of free African Americans in Prince Edward County, right outside of, of the town of Farmville, who between about 1810 and 1861 were very well recognized as uh, a small community of free blacks who were making a go of being free in a slave society. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to find out about that. How did that come about? How did they do it? And he came down here and he went through all the county records, tax records, court records, deeds, wills, mm -hmm. um, just to learn what was happening. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did these free black people get along in a slave society? It erased this society. Yeah. Um, Which a society it, whose laws were determined at eliminating basically free blacks yeah, from or, their midst. Or eliminating the freedom they, certainly, of those yeah, blacks. Right. But um, he, he worked down here for several summers, and we would frequently have lunch together. Uh, and just, you know, what did I find in the archives this morning? Wonderful stories, wonderful insights. And in fact, for, uh, for a period of about 15 or 20 years, every summer, and sometimes for an entire academic year, graduate students would be here doing research on their new projects for their dissertations. Uh, young scholars would be here working on their first book. Senior scholars would come through working on their fifth or twelfth book. Mm -hmm. um, being at what is in fact the center of gravity mm -hmm. of Virginia's history enabled me to learn from all of those people. You know, and I tried when possible to point out to them things that they might want to look at or might want to think about in their own work, but I'm sure I gained much more out of that than they did. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really a very luxurious thing for an historian <laughs> to be there while people were formulating their thoughts and figuring out what this new evidence they've looked at actually teaches us. That was as informative as reading their books, reading right. their articles, and, and reading in the archives. I want, you to emphasize, I want to emphasize something you had said earlier, that it wasn't just that they were finding... Um, new stuff. Sometimes they were looking at stuff that people looked at and used for a different purpose. I think that's something that there's always, oh, you're writing a new book about X. Well, then have you found anything new about X? And I said, well, no, but, you know, the last book was written 50 years ago and they read that material in a different way than I do. You could say that. Well, you know? yes, that's in, in exactly the case. And I'll, I'll, let me point to a recent uh, uh, addition to the Virginia bookshelf that's very, very important. 
in the last about 10 or 12 years, there's been a half a dozen really important books about the domestic slave trade, mm-hmm. about the sale of men, women, and children from Virginia to the lower Mississippi Valley between the American Revolution and the American Civil War. Now, we knew that trade was there. There was a book published back in the 1920s by Frederick Brancaldo. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's literature on this, but nobody's paid much attention to it. Now that people are paying attention to it, what do we see? Well, for one thing, we see that Virginians annually sold out of the state eight or 10,000 other Virginians for a period of about 40 years. Virginians sold more people down the river, literally, than colonial Virginians imported from Africa in the course of more than 100 years. That, in fact, was the biggest business in the state. By far. Selling people. And then wheat to supply selling, and wheat to supply those slaves who were then sh- who had been, been yeah. shipped out. Yeah, know? I mean, I Virginia mean, got away from big tobacco dependent yeah. a long time ago, and, and wheat cultivation and flour milling were very big businesses in Virginia. But in sheer terms of dollars, sure, sure, yes. the slave trade dominated everything. It yes. was the biggest business in the country. Yes. Cotton wasn't king. The no. slave trade was king. Now, we, we know that now in ways that we didn't. We see the implications for it. We understand what it meant to everybody, not just to the enslaved people whose families were disrupted permanently, mm. not just to the enslaved families who had members sold off or died along the way, but also to the people who sold them, mm-hmm. even to the people who did not own slaves. Slavery was so important in the culture that when this big business cropped up, it changed the way that interpersonal relationships worked. Mm-hmm. Everybody could participate in slavery, even if they couldn't afford to own slaves. Uh, there's a very fine book by a man named John Zaborny that came out about five or six years Where? ago on the on hiring slaves. Many, many people hired somebody to work as a cook or as a wet nurse or labor in the fields beside the farm owner yeah. so that those people were every bit as much involved in the management of slaves and in the slave economy as the tobacco platter. And we're, we're talking to John, I'm talking to John in uh, born okay. in the next podcast or so, so you can, listeners can look forward to that. Yeah, that's a it, very important book you know, on a subject that nobody had written about, but everybody knew that there was slave yeah. hiring in the same way everybody knew yeah, there was that a there slave, was slave trade. trade. But until you get to look at it in depth, you don't really understand it properly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm delighted that there's so much good material like that that's and been it, coming. I, I, John Saborny is another person I had lunch with frequently when he was yeah. doing his research for his dissertation a long time ago. And it's uh, it's interesting how that, I mean, this changes uh, a lot of the perspectives of not just Virginia, but for the Upper South. Uh, you've got this slave trade that's going on from Kentucky. It's, I, I presume also, I suspect, it's going on from Maryland as oh, well. Yeah. In fact, Maryland was in on it in a big way before yeah. Virginia because the Marylanders were more insistent on getting rid of slavery after the American Revolution than the Virginians were. And the first big slave trading houses were in Alexandria, Virginia, but they mm-hmm. did most of the buying in D.C. and Maryland. Right, and they're so, and so, they're very concerned about slave slave surplus oh, yeah. and having too many enslaved people in a in their society. Yeah, which in turn uh, demonstrates why the um, presence or absence of slavery from the Western territories in the 1840s and 50s was such a crucial issue in bringing about the American Civil War. Yeah. because planters in along the Atlantic coast, particularly in Virginia, yes. where, which supplied the largest number of slaves to the southwestern market, they realized if they could not sell their surplus property, it would be too expensive to own slaves. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't free them, or they wouldn't free them, because they didn't think that white people could live together in safety with black people mm-hmm. unless the white people enslaved them. Um, so, you know, all these big questions of public policy, private morality, religious belief, the nature of representative government, and the future of the republic are all tied together in various ways by the existence of slavery and the dynamics of the slave economy. And, and likewise, John Zaborny's uh, book really answers the question that many have, why do non-slave owners fight for the Confederacy, or why do they care about the slave system? One of our answers has traditionally been just simple racism. One of our answers has been, well, there's an expectation that when they will eventually get ahead, or kids will get ahead, they'll get ahead by owning slaves. But John's is a third answer, and that's because, well, they were hired as long as they had as long as they had access to hiring slaves. You, they, could, you could rent slave property a lot more cheaply than you could buy it. Yes. And you could dispose of it more easily. Yes. Too. 
because it's more flexible. much more flexible. But it still puts the white people in the same role as slave owners, even if they were not. It, I mean, it also it also highlights the, uh, the long-running argument was slavery weakening in 1860? Was it getting stronger or weakened? I've always been of the opinion, uh, sometimes just by intuition, that it was, not, it was certainly not getting any weaker. It was probably getting stronger. And when you've got mechanisms like slave hiring becoming ever more formal and clever, then you've got a way of dealing with what would otherwise be a surplus labor problem. The surplus labor was a problem, and that's why... I that's why the it, Western territories are... That's why the Western yeah. territories were so important. If, if people from this part of the country here in Virginia could not move to the West with their slaves or sell their property to the West, slavery would become economically indefensible. Yeah, but... but Every other aspect of slavery was profitable. Yeah. For the most part, it was profitable because you could sell men, women, and children. Yeah. And you made a lot more money doing that sometimes than you did by selling barrels of wheat sure. or uh, hogsheads full of tobacco. Um, yeah. Slaves were the big cash crop, and people at the time acknowledged it. Mm-hmm. Um, slavery was not in danger. Um, the Constitution of 1851 contained a whole host. That's, that's Virginia's Constitution. Virginia Constitution of 1851. Not the United States, I just want yeah. to make that clear. Yeah. Right, so, quite so. Here I am talking inside the box. <laughs> um, the Virginia Constitution of 1851 contained a whole host of protections for slavery, deliberately put in there to make slavery harder to get rid of. There's a prohibition on the legislature freeing slaves, ever. Mm-hmm. There's a prohibition on people freeing slaves. There's a provision in there to... Um, make the deportation of free blacks easier Mm -hmm. to whiten the free population Mm -hmm. and keep the enslaved population under control. So slavery was not in danger so long as you could carry slaves into the Western Territory or sell them there. Don't you think that one of the things that I thought after reading Zaborny's book was that slave, uh, the hiring of uh, and the renting of slave labor could have led to a different kind of industrialization in the South? Well, slavery, and, and it was it was enrichment. It was already leading to that because you had the, you could use that enslaved labor to run in Tredegar Iron Works or well, some other. Well, in all of the industrial enterprises yeah. in the Upper South, slaves were critical, mm-hmm. absolutely essential. In the tobacco factories, in the iron mills, in the uh, flour mills, the railroads and canals depended heavily on slave labor mm-hmm. for building and construction and maintenance. I mean, all of these big enterprises own slaves. Mm-hmm. It's not just planters and yeah. household people own slaves. The big enterprises own slaves. Slavery was the most valuable piece of taxable property in the entire state, except the land. And the price of slaves in the southwestern markets rose so fast during the 1850s that by the 1870s, slaves would have been worth more than the land itself. <laughs> well, we got, we got down the the grim, but fascinating subject of enslavement and slave trade. How did that happen? But, you can't get away uh, you from can, it. Well, it's such an absolutely fundamental aspect of uh, Virginia's history and of the South's history. Yeah. And it's intimately linked with the subject of race relations, which is another essential topic for the whole country. Still, mm-hmm. it's not just limited to slavery times. It's not just limited to Jim Crow times. So what are some uh, other stories that you, you uh, have discovered? You, I mean, I should should add, and you've already mentioned this, that you worked on this. The, is it the the biographical encyclopedia? The, 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 the Dictionary of Virginia Biography. The Dictionary of Virginia Biography, and that is one of the reasons why you know where all the archival bodies are buried, because you have researched people in every year. Certainly, every decade, Certainly every decade, every decade of Virginia's history, you never confined. You never confined to periodization. You never. That was that was not part of your your, your work. You no, know, if there's a boundary around my work, it's a geographical yes. one for Virginia. Yeah. it's not a chronological one like many historians. But even then, you know what's what's Virginia? Exactly. It's on when right uh, colonial period. Virginia included most of what's now the Midwest. Daniel Boone is a Virginian. Daniel Boone was a Virginian, born in Pennsylvania, but yeah, well, yeah, but then. Um, you know, Kentucky was part of Virginia until 1792. West Virginia was part of Virginia until 1863. Well, so, but the thing that's interesting, the Dictionary yeah. of Virginia Biography really has broadened and deepened my appreciation of aspects of Virginia history. We began that here at the Library of Virginia many years ago, and we have published approximately 1,500 biographies 
but we researched the lives of maybe 5,000 more people <laughs> to ascertain which ones appeared to be of such interest and significance that mm -hmm. we needed to publish biographies on them. So that has taken me into uh, an immense different variety of resources. You know, sometimes I spend a whole day trying to figure out when somebody was married mm -hmm. or what somebody's mother's name was or whether somebody graduated from a school or just merely attended, um, looking up election records to see whether somebody won election to the legislature by a large margin or a small margin. Mm -hmm. Which has taken me into some seldom used records. It, not just me, my colleagues here. I've had a wonderful set of colleagues that have worked with us on this and like projects for many years. And uh, we learn from each other, from you know what they learn, I learn, what I learn, they learn. Um, it's been a great education and it's, it's taken us into a level of deep understanding on many subjects that people haven't thought much about. Let me uh, give you a for instance. We, okay. worked, we worked for a long time with the Encyclopedia of Virginia, which is an online reference work that the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities created about a decade ago, to do a large number of entries about Virginia between the end of slavery and what is called the disfranchisement, which is a constitutional convention of 1902 that basically disfranchised almost all the black and Virginians that was, and a great many white Virginians. And that was the, yeah, we, we should talk about that again, but that, yeah. that's sort of, that's the, Actually, that's the official constitutional in Virginia, at least. That's the official constitutional formation of what is called Jim Crow, right? Right. That, uh, but it, it happens in different southern states at different times. Yeah, but yeah. it happened in all of them. It happened in all of them, yeah. yeah. And it, it, each state was different. Yeah. But anyway, we did um, a great many biographies of people who were involved. Freed people, yeah. free businessmen, entrepreneurs, politicians, most people don't know that more than a hundred African-American men won election to the General Assembly of Virginia in the Constitutional Convention of 1867 and 8. More than a hundred. I mean, that's probably more than African-Americans who've been in the General Assembly since the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. We're trying to write biographies of all of them. We've done about two-thirds or three-quarters. Nobody knew more than one or two sentences worth of information about any of those people until we made the effort to find the facts. Mm -hmm. And we have published substantial biographies of about two-thirds to three-quarters of those people. Um, and it completely changed the way I view the period between the Civil War. Can, can and you the tell, end of can the you tell us about one of those? Some of, those, some of them are, are truly remarkable. Yeah. One of my colleagues here uh, researched and wrote a biography of a man named Peter Carter not famous. Nobody today's ever heard of him unless they've read Don Gunter's biography of Peter Carter. Peter Carter was from the Eastern Shore, grew up in slavery, got freed and joined the United States Army during the Civil War, fought to the end of the Civil War, and then was sent out to Texas with the Buffalo Soldiers <laughs> after the war. Came back at, to Virginia at the end of the 1860s, now he's able to read and write. Mm -hmm became a local political, radical Republican political leader on the Eastern Shore, and was elected to four consecutive term, two-year terms in the House of Delegates. Mm -hmm. um, Which county out of Curious? Yeah. He yeah. Was, well, the Eastern Shore was one district. It was all one district yeah. then? Yeah. Um, but, uh, he lived in Northampton. All right. um, but Peter Carter was a, re a remarkable success story. Yeah. He had learned to read and write. He was very intelligent. Um, he presided at two or three Republican Party state conventions. Mm -hmm. During political campaigns, he would speak all throughout the Chesapeake area, the, the old first congressional district. Uh, he was in high demand as a speaker, was a skillful legislator, and even without any formal education, he was one of the first board members of what is now Virginia State University. Mm -hmm. Very, very important man. Um, if he had lived to be an old man, he probably would have been better remembered, but in his time, he was very well known. That's just one of the yeah. many discoveries of that. One of the that's come out of many this people that I, I think to myself. Uh, well, Vernon Burton, uh, uh, mm -hmm. the Southern historian friend of mine, said we need a few more monuments, and it's and it, I would love to see Peter Carter's at least his bust in the Eastville uh, at the Eastville Courthouse on the on the green there. There is now a highway historical marker to yeah. Peter Carter over on the Eastern Shore, so and, at and least it, we can it do. was put up as a consequence of the discoveries of this biographical research. Yeah. There were a lot of people like Peter Carter. 
Um, their stories are very inspiring, and yeah. very rich. Um, but on the other hand, there are some stories that are really sad. Uh, one of the uh, entries that I wrote was on a man named Johnson Collins, who was like Peter Carter, was born into slavery. He never had much education. He may just have only been able to rudimentary reading and writing. Um, poor farm boy. Uh, after the Civil War, he did get elected to the legislature for one term, about 1870-something. Um, did not run for re-election. I had a hard time finding information about him. Mm. You know, it, historians' work is a lot like police trying to solve a crime. You follow the money. Exactly. It's money that creates paper records, deeds, wills, tax records, and the like. Uh, and ladies so ladies and gentlemen, by the way, that's a, that is a pro tip. Just a hashtag pro tip. Follow the money. Yeah. Follow the money. That's right. Um, I tried following the money of a man who didn't have any. Yeah, yeah. Um, he did have a very small plot of land uh, just a few acres, and so I started going through the county tax records. After a while, I found that his land was sold for non-payment of taxes. And there's a notation in the tax records, Johnson College, now of Washington, D.C. So he had moved out of the county somewhere mm -hmm. along the line, stopped paying taxes on his land, and it was confiscated and sold for back taxes. But then I knew where to look next. Mm -hmm. Johnson Collins, one-time member of the Virginia legislature, spent the last 30 years of his life living in a little apartment in Washington, D.C. and working as a night watchman. The limitations that a man like Johnson Collins faced in the period after the end of slavery were very great. Mm -hmm. Many people like him were unable to overcome them. Yeah. Some people, like Peter Carter, uh, perhaps because he became literate, uh, perhaps because of his natural intelligence, were able to make great successes of their lives. This period after the end of slavery is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it shows the opportunities that were available and the obstacles to achieving success that were uh, also there. So it, uh, uh, there's a lot of good stories and there's a lot of really sad stories. They're all those human dramas that we all look for um, that actually mean more, I think, than some of the overarching big theories where you talk about does history progress or yeah. regress or repeat itself, and that's mostly just waste talk. Um, it, it's all about people. History is about people. What happens to them, how they shape history, and how the times in which they live shape them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm engaged now in, in working on a project of doing uh, something similar for the woman suffrage movement in Virginia. Talk about that. Oh, this is fascinating too because we don't know very much about the leaders of the woman suffrage movement in Virginia. A few of the most prominent ones uh, are famous enough that we know something about their lives. But um, we have the records of the Equal Suffrage League here in this library, mm -hmm. and we've been going through them. One of my colleagues, Mary Julian, and I have been going through them for, uh, for a long time now, and we found ways to identify the leaders in almost every town and county in the state. We have been doing biographical research on about 75 people, and this is a remarkable group of extremely talented and able and creative and successful women. Um, you know, this is the 19-teens, so this is the height of the progressive period. Almost all of them were involved in uh, an educational reform organization or public health or uh, prison reform or uh, child labor reform. There were a whole host of uh, uh, reform movements at the mm -hmm. time, which just happened to be at the time when the women's clubs were new and flourishing everywhere. Uh, it's a, a time when uh, women were very actively engaged in support of missionary work through their children, through their, through their churches. Mm -hmm. um, this connected them across geographical lines in the state. Um, they were mostly elite white urban women. Mm -hmm. But urban in in a sense, in a very broad sense. We're talking Lynchburg and well, Lynchburg Petersburg. Was, Lynchburg was an herb. It's I mean, an herb. It, by it, today's it, standards, it was not all that big. But it was not a small town and it was not the countryside. Right. These were members of professional families, uh, rich families for the most part. They were the only people who had the time and leisure and resources sure. to devote to something like woman suffrage. Right. <clears throat> we have found some wonderfully interesting stories among these women. Uh, they were in, immensely industrious, very successful, very thoughtful, uh, and they were able to achieve a great deal against extremely big odds. In fact, the Equal Suffrage League of Virginia 
was the largest non-military group of Virginians ever formed. Really? Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, no, nobody knows this, but it, it's, it's true. Wow. Um, and so seeing how they organized this group, yeah. and how they interacted with national suffragists, and how they interacted with suffragists elsewhere in the South, and how they dealt with some really serious problems has been very, very illuminating. We're going to do a major exhibition and educational website here at the Library of Virginia in the year 2020, which is the centennial of woman suffrage. And I think this story is finally going to get told in a proper way that lets people know what happened and why. Because, you know, we always have in the past have viewed this movement as a failure because the Virginia General Assembly never ratified the 19th Amendment. But they did persuade the General Assembly to come around on the question of woman suffrage, so long as Virginians had control of it. Mm-hmm. It was too late to matter, but they did succeed in getting the Virginia Assembly to do something that, to this date, almost nobody knows that they did. Mm-hmm. So we're changing the historical story by finding out in detail what really happened, and not just repeating what people said happened. Yeah. Let's talk. Um for a couple minutes about uh, a book. When did this come out? Um, the Grandees of Government. It's 2013. 2013. Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia. Yeah, this, uh, this, uh, the, the subtitle tells you what the book is yes, about. It's a, it's the Grandees of Government tells you who done it. <laughs> it's an answer to the question, uh, I think, let me put this question, is why have has political hierarchy survived so long in Virginia? Is that our political and social hierarchy? They're the same thing. Same, same thing in Virginia, so really, which is interesting. It's really one question. Yeah. Um, and why, there, there why are, is it? There are things about Virginia's history that have engaged my curiosity for decades. And one of the main questions is why did the political leadership of Virginia appear to be extremely resistant to change pretty consistently? All the way through. From 1619 from, to well, 1969, from the, basically. Well, or until about. 2018, maybe. Yeah, maybe uh, 2018. The, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not the kind of question that's easy to answer. Yeah. Because um, right, I mean, change, change takes place all the time. And but, for one thing, states shouldn't make that much difference. But states do make that difference. Oh, yeah, I mean, everybody lives in a, in a state. It may have artificial geographical boundaries. Yeah. But it does have its own unique constitutional and legal traditions. It has its own unique political culture. If state boundaries didn't matter, why is it that Virginia has always been a deeply conservative state and neighboring Maryland during the 20th and 21st centuries has been one of the most progressive states? Mm -hmm. Why is that? It's not just because there's a river between. It's because the evolution of the political and legal cultures within the artificial state boundaries take different trajectories in every state. Virginia is just as different from North Carolina as it is from Maryland, mm-hmm. from Tennessee, from West Virginia. All these states are different because these state institutions and practices evolve differently once they are independent of each other. Why Virginia? Why was it this way? I mean, I, th- I think I've been wondered about that since I first started mm-hmm. engaging with the study of Virginia history almost 50 years ago. It wasn't until I had known enough by looking through all these records and working on all these biographies and getting into the primary source materials of every decade that I began to see some ways in which I could answer that question. Why had they always been so resistant to change? In part, it's just simple. If you're in charge and in power, you want to stay there, and you'd be hostile to innovations like universal manhood suffrage in the 19th well, century. We could say that about any state. You, you could, could say, say that about any political yeah, culture. But in Virginia, it's been remarkably durable. Yes, that's the difference. I, mean, yeah. here, I know. I started off uh, as a student of 20th century uh, political history, and it, it made me wonder. You know, you look at the 1930s in the southern states. You look at the 19-teens in the southern state. I'm talking about the New Deal period, mm-hmm. the progressive period. Every single southern state had a formidable, progressive, reforming, even radical political party, and they sometimes won. Mm-hmm. That did not happen in Virginia, not even close. It was subsumed in some ways, right? It, it just absolutely did not happen. And so Virginia stands outside the South in that part of that tradition. Why is that? Mm-hmm. And okay. also, as a, also a, someone was also pointing out differences in lynchings between different Southern states. But that, that, that might be part of it. That might not be part of it. But It might or might not right. be. But there's, uh, certainly there's a long-standing uh, resistance to 
um, change from below. That and successful resistance to change from that, below. That that has always struck me as curious. Yeah, it is I've curious. Always wondered about. You know, for I think the first thing that I thought about that was when I was reading about the Constitutional Convention of 1901 and two. Mm-hmm. This is the convention that disfranchised almost all African American men in the state, and it simultaneously disfranchised about half of the white men in the state. Right. And Moreover, this, and that convention <laughs> did not submit the Constitution to the voters for ratification or rejection. They just put it in place. And okay, this, here's the question. This is in the history, by the way, of a Constitutional Convention of 1830, which uh, ixnayed uh, universal suffrage yeah. when everyone else was going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, go on. This, that, is, yeah, I mean, this, this has a long, deep history. Exactly. But in 1902, the convention put the Constitution in effect without a ratification referendum. Mm-hmm. If you tried to do that now, you'd have a revolution on your hands. Yeah. There was hardly even a complaint at the time. How? Two questions. How did the people who did that reconcile what they did with a belief in the American democratic tradition? Mm-hmm. The other question is, how did they get away with it and almost nobody complained? <laughs> well, the answer to the first question is that they didn't believe in a democratic tradition. They, they believed in a Virginian democracy. They, they, they <laughs> were not a democracy. They, they were heirs of and expert practitioners in the same political culture of the hierarchical tobacco plantation system of the colonial period, mm-hmm. where only elite white men could vote or hold office. They were the heirs of that tradition, a very undemocratic tradition. It's not even a very representative tradition, because by keep letting only adult white men who own property vote, they therefore excluded almost all other people from representation in the General Assembly. It wasn't a representative government either. Mm-hmm. It represented only tobacco planters. No, it definitely it's definitely Plato's certainly Plato's definition of aristocracy. Yeah, but see, this well, no, of oligarchy. Really, well, this is this is exactly where you cannot separate the political leadership from the cultural elite leadership. Yeah. they were the same people. Yeah, they were from the same family, sometimes for generations. So those people never did buy into all men are created equal. Not even close. Not even all white men. Then the other question about how and why did they get away with it with almost no complaint? That's harder to understand. I mean, I would have complained. Uh, <laughs> you say I, I still grumble about it. Yes, but that, you grumble about it in 2013. And, and I, remember, I remember in in graduate school, many, many years ago, I asked a friend of mine who had grown up in Virginia, and was, her family was moderately well-connected, did she understand why in 1902 they put this constitution into effect and disfranchised more than half the voters in Virginia and almost nobody complained. And she said, we don't think we're entitled to. Now that is a terrible indictment of the political culture of Virginia that led a large proportion of its people to believe that they really weren't entitled to take part in their own government. So, you know, trying to answer questions like this led me to write The Grandees of Government. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know whether I succeeded in explaining it. I think probably somebody else could write another book on the same subject and treat it very differently. This is what I came to see, uh-huh. that the, the, the hierarchy that was created early in the 17th century with the first tobacco planters has continued in existence in various modifications well into the 20th century. Um, the Civil Rights Movement, I think, finally broke it down or broke it up I'm not sure what the right verb is, but um, we still have a political leadership that is opposed to radical change, and that's that's part of that culture. It's not so much you know the old uh, tobacco planting elite running the government, or right. or the old Democratic Party bird organization controlling everything in the first part of the 20th century. But it it uh, this, these cultural ramifications of people's understandings and beliefs, how they're brought up, the culture they're brought up in, that influences you for the rest of your life. It's a strange continuing existence it, well I, I don't know it, it is strange but it's definitely continuing yes yeah well it's, it's let's maybe not strange let's say strange as in curious um, it, it, it invites explanation and that's it why, does. that's what I've been trying to do is explain some of these phenomena in Virginia history and yet uh, I mean the hierarchy people climb up the hierarchy 
um, people are able to scrabble their way up the hierarchy. People fall down the hierarchy and then come back up the hierarchy. I mean, well, that's the American dream. But is it really the fact? I'm, ask, I'm asking you. Is that, that the question? I mean, it, it, the 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 quest the the fact that Harry Bird had an organization and that his name is from the same from the same family as the other birds that might give the sense that the birds were always in power. But were they weren't they? always in power. But they also didn't start from nowhere. They didn't start from nowhere. You know, yeah. Harry, Harry Bird was an extraordinary gifted political leader and manipulator of people. Yeah. Um, the story is that when he was in his teens, uh, he gained control of the newspaper yeah. in Winchester and started buying apple orchards, became very rich, got into politics, served on the city council, got into the state senate. 1923, 1922, became chair of the state Democratic Party Central Committee, elected governor in 25, and was in basically in charge of the state's Democratic Party from then until he died in 1966. Mm -hmm. But he didn't start from nowhere. He started as a bird. He started as a bird, and his father gave him a newspaper. His father gave him a newspaper, right. So, yeah. the, you know, the, the way you, you move up in Virginia is that you start near the top. <laughs> think about Thomas Jefferson. Well, I'm, let's think, think about Thomas Jefferson. Well, Think, think about his political career. We know he was in the House of Burgesses from 1769 to 1776. Yeah. Okay, seven years as a legislator. Not so fast. He missed a couple of sessions. He did. The sessions were only a few months long. Jefferson was an active legislator in the House of Burgesses for only about seven or eight months during yeah. his whole life. Mm -hmm. But he's at the top or near the top of every important legislative committee throughout the time. He was a very influential man from the time he went in. How and why is that? Well, he was the biggest tobacco planter in his county, even though he was still a young man. Uh -huh. He was also related to nearly every other important person in the House of Burgesses. So Thomas Jefferson started at the top and rapidly rose. Yeah, that's the way you do it. Or, or you, well, the, other, the other way to do it is to marry a well, tobacco I was plantation. I was going to say. That, that that's let's not think about Thomas let's think about Peter Jefferson because who's Peter Jefferson Thomas's father. father but what is he was like he was actually an overseer at one point wasn't he uh, he was a slave overseer perhaps he may have been as a young man he made his fame as a surveyor and that's where being a surveyor is a very I've oh, noticed yeah. I mean and I, I've actually been thinking about this going through the the generals of the Continental Army it's amazing the number of people that began as surveyors in ever of every state uh, yeah, well, being a surveyor was a highly skilled profession. It is. You had to know your Trig mathematics. Trigonometry. You had to be able to uh, control a work party in the field. You had to be able to take responsibility. But also, if you were a surveyor of land, you were often out on the edges of the settled regions, and somebody would hire you to survey a piece of property that they wanted to obtain a land grant for. Yes. Well, you saw where all the good property was, and you'd survey that for yourself. Yes. Being a survey were one of the very best ways to make yourself and your family rich. Exactly. There, I, were, there were people in Virginia who did that very successfully, one of the like main, George Washington, for instance. Exactly. And so he gets all the prime Shenandoah bottomland, which then eventually his brothers get. The other thing I, I just realized about surveyors is they get paid in cash. That's important. And too. that very few people are, and they are able to turn that right back into buying land. So that's I think that's another explanation of that's one of the ways to get ahead. In the colonial period the office of county surveyor was probably the most lucrative job that you could find. Yeah. And influential. You knew everybody. People depended on you. And so when a young man like George Washington decided he would stand for the House of Purchases, he had a good chance of winning election. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um we should probably start wrapping things up, but um, it's easy to talk forever on these. Subjects. We can. We we so I noticed we just ranged from from Harry Bird, Thomas from George Washington, domestic eternal slave trade to suffrage to yes, and Harry Bird, Thomas Jefferson. Well, that was George Washington. It's um, a big story. It's now. a big story. It's a big story. Um, how did the civil rights movement? Do you think break up? I'm not, well, I'm not sure that it has, but it it certainly was a uh, I don't know if it's an unintended consequence of the of the civil rights movement. But it did. I think the civil rights movement destroyed so much of the political structure based on white supremacy that one of the things it also affected was the existing political social hierarchy in Virginia. Would that be that be one way of putting well, it? Let's, let's or how would you put it? Rephrase it a little bit. All right. The um, the opposition to the civil rights movement that the elite Virginians, the Bird Organization, the 20th century grandees made, basically destroyed the organization. Mm -hmm. 
for for a reason that is obvious once you think about it, but not obvious on the surface. The question became, do you want to preserve rigid segregation at all expense? Mm -hmm. Even if that expense requires the governor to close your public school, Mm -hmm. because that is what it ultimately came down to. Mm -hmm. Governor Alderman closed schools in Norfolk, Charlottesville, and Warrington, and we're ready to close schools in other states, I mean other cities. And many of the people who had supported opposition to desegregation said, no, the school, we've got to stay at the school. This is our children's future. Mm-hmm. And so the, the organization, Bird Organization, really self-destructed on that point. Very nearly, it's less than a decade before you get the abolition of the poll tax, you get the Voting Rights Act, you get the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which for the first time since the 1890s, allowed black Virginians to register and vote in large numbers. Mm-hmm. And since 192, allowed it a lot of white Virginians to register and vote in large numbers. That's, so, I mean, that's so astonishing. People yeah, just don't realize yeah, that. We don't realize how closed it was. The, the great political scientist V.O. Key wrote in the 1940s that compared to Mississippi, Virginia was a hotbed of democracy. Yeah. Oh, and Mississippi had, but Virginia had a lower rate of voters yeah. than any other state in the country. In fact, than in any other country in the world, it was not a democracy. It wasn't even a representative government. It was definitely an oligarchy. Yeah, you know, if, if you could say that government of Virginia in the colonial period had been a government of the tobacco planters, by the tobacco planters, and for the tobacco planters. By the 20th century, it was a government of the businessmen, by the businessmen, and for the businessmen. And bus- All the rest of us were left out. And, and businessmen, small town businessmen. I mean, small town department store owners, uh, well, editors, bankers, bankers, newspaper editors. That was industrialists. The, yeah. these, were, these were people who uh, had substantial political and economic influence in their counties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they had substantial, very substantial influence over who got elected in the county and city governments. Uh, they were called the courthouse rings. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> the name fits, but. That began breaking up yeah. in, in the 1960s, and uh, the very large increase in the number of Virginians who could vote beginning in the 1960s did transform um, the state in many ways. <clears throat> that transformation is not over. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while it resembled a transformation of the 1870s and 1880s when there was a biracial coalition of uh, Republicans and readjusters that formed and briefly took over the state government. That was in the 1870s yeah, and 1880s. Yeah. 1870s and 1880s. But it didn't last very long. No. As soon as it achieved its main objective, it fell apart, largely on the issue of race. Mm-hmm. And the white supremacy Democratic Party then came in and ran on white supremacy platforms for the rest of the century, uh, resulting in the disfranchisement constitution of 1902. But for a brief period of time, from 1879 to 1883, Virginia had a biracial political coalition in charge of both houses of the General Assembly, governor, lieutenant governor, uh, attorney general, and Supreme Court of Appeals. That's the only time that the lower classes in Virginia had ever even come close to participating in government in a truly meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And the last time before the late 1960s. So working out the consequences of what happened in the 1960s, particularly with the abolition of the poll tax and the Voting Rights Act, and the woman's movement that came on hard on the heels of that, mm-hmm. worked a major transformations in Virginia society and culture. Whether they worked a similar large transformation in the political culture may not be a question that we're ready yet to answer. Yeah, Unclear, too soon to tell, as as Zhao Enlai supposedly said about the French Revolution. Um, Before we finish, I'm just curious, you run into lots of um, probably genealogists, amateur historians, family historians, we should should call them, in the Library of Virginia. I'm not asking for your personal opinion on that, uh, but... It's one of the biggest hobbies in the country. It's one of the biggest hobbies in the country. what would be a piece of advice you would give them? I mean, you are, in a way, you've been doing a lot of their work for them. Well, I've, <laughs> been, doing, I've been doing the same kind of you've work. You've been doing the same my, kind, exactly, for your own projects. To, you know, to do a, 
a biography for a reference work or a biography in book is form. The, is, you have to get all the family connections right. Exactly. It, so it, you, it, your, your first thing would be, if you're looking for someone, is follow the money. Follow the money. But and then the, the second one would be... The, the, the money is what leaves the paper trail. Right. Uh, the second thing is to look for what's not there. What do you mean by that? That's so zen. Well, for instance, I was just the other day... Uh, beginning to work on a, a member of the Equal Suffrage League of Virginia. Uh, yeah. I could find her death, and I could find some records about her, but I couldn't find her birth. Couldn't find a birth date. I mean, they said she was born in the city of Richmond, but I couldn't find a birth date. So I went and I looked to see what else I could find about the family. Mm-hmm. She died living with a brother. Okay. So I got uh, some information on the brother. Well, she and the brother had different mothers. Oh, okay. There were several other children. Some had one mother, some had... Well, okay, well, this tells us that the, the woman I was looking at was uh, the daughter of a... He was a stone cutter here huh. in Richmond. And his first wife, the brother she lived with as an old woman, was the daughter of the man's second wife. So I, 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 I went to the cemetery records then to see how they're all buried next to one another, and I was able to figure out who they were, how they were, when she was, which year she was born in, and then I could know where to go and look for an official register mm-hmm. of her birth. Well, so her birth year was not there. I see. Birth date was not there. So that was one of the things I had to figure out a backdoor way of ascertaining. Uh, it's, a t- it's a very tough for most of the 19th century and most of the 20th century also because women were identified and identified themselves by their husbands' names. Mm-hmm. Mrs. David Campbell, Mrs. Governor Campbell, not ever, or hardly ever, Mrs. Maria Campbell, mm-hmm. which was the name of a wife of a governor in mm-hmm. the 19th century. So when we get our uh, roster of members of an equal suffrage league in, say, Stanton, um, uh, there's a few unmarried women, Miss so-and-so, Miss Jane Smith will say. And then there's Mrs. Judge Smart and Mrs. Colonel Smith. And, you know, it's all men's names. So uh, one thing you do is you find out where the men were buried and look who's buried next. <laughs> and it's very often the wife. And then you, cemetery records identify people by their real name. Uh-huh. You, you find Margaret and Susan and Jessica. And that's how you can. It, it, we spend a lot of time here working on suffrage women just trying to figure out what their real names were because they weren't born. Mrs. Judge John Smith. No, they weren't. Um, it's very, very demanding work mm-hmm. uh, figuring out these genealogical puzzles. Uh, I can understand why people really get hooked on it because yeah. it's very intriguing. It's very like the work that we historians do on any subject. Mm-hmm. You have to find out what's there, what's not there, and how to find what's not there. Mm-hmm. To answer your question, was this father married twice or was the mother married twice? Mm-hmm. Uh, is somebody born in this county or that county? Uh, did somebody win election because of who he was related to? Mm-hmm. There's, there are a lot of questions like this that come up, and solving these puzzles is the you know that's that's the nitty gritty hard work of the historical research. My guest today has been Brent Tarter. Brent, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Alan. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.